Mind Matter Media presents Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast, where discussions center around the most current and innovative approaches to landscape conservation and design. This is the show for stakeholders who want to adapt to the climate crisis, halt biodiversity loss, and change the world by designing sustainable and resilient landscapes through collaborative conservation action. Hey everyone, welcome to episode two of Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast. I'm your co-host, Rob Kimpoloni. And hi there, I'm your other co-host, I'm Tom Mewald. Hey Rob, um, so this is our first episode where we have a guest, and uh, so who do we have lined up this week? We actually have a great episode planned for today, Tom. Uh, Robin West is joining us to discuss climate change impacts and adaptation strategies on national wildlife refuges. As you know, Robin was regional chief for the refuge system in Portland. And before that, he was manager of Kenai Refuge in Alaska. So he has a wealth of information to share. And we're super glad to have him joining us today. Right. No, that's very great. And uh, we're very fortunate to have Robin's voice and perspective as someone who was there as it happened with the passage of the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, or ANILCA as it's known, and um, has really unique perspectives that um, he's been able to put forth in, in his book and are well documented in 30 of 40 and the 49th, Mem- Memories of a Wildlife Biologist in Alaska. Um, I, read, I read the book, and in many ways I saw Robin's book as a personal memoir in, in landscape conservation and in a wilderness setting. I found it to be really fascinating stuff to read. And then uh, someone who was in the hot seat of managing wildlife refuges across the Pacific Northwest and Pacific Islands. So, you know, we're privileged to have Robin here to talk about his experience in in conservation over his uh, 30 plus year career. You know, in, in full transparency, Robin and I are old colleagues and I was his planning team leader when he was manager at Kenai. So, Robin and I worked very closely under very stressful political conditions for for many years. And uh, in addition to being the refuge manager at Kenai, Robin's 35-year career with the Fish and Wildlife Service included being a fisheries biologist and uh, a wildlife biologist and a contaminant specialist. And he closed out his career as regional refuge chief, where He had administrative oversight of tens of millions of acres of marine protected areas and refuges in the Pacific Northwest, Hawaii, and the remote islands. Uh, Robin's retired now, but um, he remains active in conservation causes that support sustainable use of natural resources. He travels frequently throughout the world, and enjoys writing, photography, and a wide variety of outdoor activities. His book, 30 of 40 in the 49th, shares some of his many adventures while working in Alaska. So without further ado, let me welcome my colleague and friend, Robin West. It's good to have you here, Robin. Welcome to the show. Thanks, uh, Rob and Tom. It's good to talk to you, and I look forward to our discussion today. So before we begin, Robin, did I miss anything from your bio that you'd like to add or highlight? 
Oh, I think that'll get us started. Uh, I guess uh, the big thing is I've been around long enough, uh, blessed with a life that's seen a lot of change. And so 35 years working for the government gives one perspective, but 67 years walking the planet gives another. And so I, you know, I really have, have gained a lot of insight in, in world problems and solutions in both professionally and personally and uh, uh, traveling around the planet. And uh, so, you know, I kind of look at what we're facing in terms of the global changes and climate and stresses on resources is kind of like watching your children grow. Uh, if you if they're there with you uh, all the time, you don't notice it so much incrementally. But when you move back and forth across the country over decades, the changes are really obvious. And so I guess that's a lot of what I, I bring to my view of this is growing up in Oregon, moving to Alaska for 30 years, going back to Oregon, seeing the changes there, and then uh, traveling around uh, around the country and around the world and, and seeing changes over time too. Well, we look forward to you sharing some of that perspective uh, today, Robin. So thank you for that. But uh, before we do, um, I want to talk about your book a little bit. Uh, you published a book in 2021, 30 of 40 in the 49th, Memories of a Wildlife Biologist in Alaska. I know what a monumental feat that is. So first, congratulations on getting that across the finish line. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book? Well, I'd be happy to. It it really was easy to write because it uh, it just was relaying uh, stories of you know some of my work and private life in Alaska. You know, I had the time because of COVID. I, you know, I like to travel, and yet we were restricted, and uh, for for good reason, uh, we're staying home, and so I had time to sit down at the computer and type these things out, but. As I when I retired, um, you know, I had a bucket list of things like a lot of people do, and one of them was to paddle a good portion of the Yukon River, which is a wild, long river, uh, you know, that bisects Alaska, and planned on kind of doing it myself to reflect on on nature and life and 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 all of that, and so that was that was kind of the the foundation for as I paddled down the upper Yukon, kind of remembering being there uh, 40 years before and uh, some of the things that uh, we'd accomplished and seen along the way. And so that's the basis of the book. You know, again, it has a lot of uh, work-related things, but a lot of history about Alaska uh, and my experiences and privately too. Yeah, no, the challenges definitely are there. And, and Alaska is a really fascinating place to talk about um, these landscape scale conservation initiatives and, and changes uh, related to climate change. And you kind of talked a little bit, You at one level, you say that not a lot has changed, and but at, the, uh, at another level, it sounds like you've seen some changes due to climate and to development. Could you maybe provide a little color on what some of those high level changes that you've seen around the state in the 40 years since? You know, one of the first things that come to mind because you often uh, see it in uh, in the news is the sea ice, and so most people never see it. And other than uh, you know a documentary on polar bears or something like that, you're really not that familiar with it. But you know, one of my early jobs was working on the coastline of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and part of Anilka 
set aside uh, the coastal plain of the refuge for further study to determine whether they would open it for oil and gas development or not. And so there was an incredible amount of uh, effort in looking at all parts of the refuge and its wildlife and its fisheries and water, as well as the oil and gas potential. And I worked several years on the coast looking at fisheries and, and water issues. And I'll just say that in those years, and these are the early 1980s, we camped up there for months at a time in the summer and would lie awake at night with the ice crushing and moving and shifting the ice pack. And it was always, you know, visible no more than a mile, perhaps off the barrier islands. And if you went up there today in the summer, you wouldn't see any ice, you know, and, and so I guess you could say, so what? But when you start looking at uh, all the ramifications of uh, photosynthesis under the ice, the melting of the permafrost, uh, not just polar bears, but uh, salmon and their life cycle, certainly the coastal communities and uh, the people that that live up there, the uh, Inupiat people and the Yupik folks on the West Coast, uh, we're seeing um, communities kind of slough off into the ocean and uh, we're seeing uh, increased wildfires even in the north and all of the, the warmer uh, winters and ice conditions affect safety and travel and uh, so impact of subsistence uses and uh, certainly the cultural resources are being lost to uh, all the historic uh, coastal development where folks lived right on the coastline is, is the, it sloughs off and into the ocean, it's lost. And so, you know, that's just one thing uh, up north. As you move further south, there's certainly uh, many more. We're going to focus in on the Kenai and, and the Pacific Islands, Robin, uh, where you've spent a significant amount of time working to address issues, uh, climate and, and otherwise. But in regards to you know, the Alaska uh, state of change, I mean, are you seeing any adaptation strategies uh, that, that are attempting to, to address uh, some of these changes? Uh, you know, honestly, I'm seeing a lot of discussion. And uh, so I think pe people are becoming more aware um, at community meetings. And, and so you don't even have to agree on uh, the causes of, of climate change. You can just look at the data and say, okay, things are warming. And if you don't want to talk about uh, human post-industrial uh, revolution carbon in the atmosphere, that's fine. You can ignore that and still recognize that things are warming and, and there are impacts. And so I'm seeing a lot of discussion in, in terms of planning and recognition that uh, wildfire season is changing, insect infestation is increasing, uh, permafrost is thawing, and therefore uh, septic systems are failing and, and home foundations are failing in the north. And so we've got to do something and we don't have to agree on why we're doing it, uh, except we're trying to uh, mitigate the impacts. Uh, in terms of actually seeing implementation of those plans, I've seen very little to date, but the discussions are increasing both for the human environment and, and for uh, fish and wildlife. And, uh, you know, you know, talking about all those issues and, and pro, uh, you know, these changes that we're seeing on the landscape, uh, to me, 
uh, landscape conservation is about being inclusive to the people living in the landscape and having representation both with the public land management agencies and there's industry that want to use the landscape and uh, and then there's historically underrepresented populations that uh, you know indigenous populations in the landscape too uh, you know just going back to Anilka and and what you were talking about in the history there what were some of the repercussions um, for indigenous populations from from that well you know it would probably depend on who you talk to but certainly the decisions made for Alaska Natives primarily made uh, with the Native Claims Settlement Act in 1971 and not so much with ANILCA in 1980. And it was just a recognition that these people had rights uh, that were undefined. And uh, there was a little bit of language in the purchase agreement with Russia acknowledging that as well as in the Statehood Act that uh, recognized that they needed to be resolved and uh, the issues of sovereignty and uh, ownership of the land were going to be decided either via legislation or adjudication mm -hmm. in the courts. And the attempt was done uh, in the Native Claims Settlement Act to do that and created some for-profit corporations and and uh, conveyed a lot of land and recognized village corporations and so forth. And it's really unique in that, you know, historically, uh, the United States dealt with indigenous people with reservations. And, and mm -hmm, right. uh, this is unique. And, you know, the Alaska natives were never conquered in any kind of battles like uh, Plains Indians or anything else. There weren't any treaties. So it largely was resolved. But Anilka then really dealt with uh, Entitle Eight uh, subsistence issues. And uh, so that is the lifeblood of, of native people is being able to, to take fish and wildlife as they've done for thousands of years to support themselves and, and their families and re remote communities. And so that's been extremely controversial because of the federal state divide on it. I don't think we probably need to go into too much uh, mention of that. It, just to say that uh, there are changes now that are very evident and I would argue that they are climate related uh, that are impacting subsistence resources and uh, right. uh, the native community will benefit from Title VIII giving them preference. But uh, if the stresses are such that caribou herds are totally declining or, or salmon are absence, then there really isn't any piece of legislation that's going to help either. So let's uh, shift gears, Robin, and turn to Kenai Refuge. Um, can you give our listeners a 30,000 foot overview of the refuge for folks who haven't been there? Well, sure, <clears throat> happy to. It's a, it's a little over 2 million acres and was created, uh, well, actually FDR uh, through executive or order established it just a few days after Pearl Harbor was, was bombed. So, uh, you know, it's a World War II uh, baby, if you will, refuge as was Kodiak. So it's pre-statehood. And, uh, you know, it's been around a long time. It was originally the Kenai National Moose Range and was set aside because of a unique, large variety of moose that is still very popular for people to come and see here. But Anilka expanded its purposes and changed the boundaries and, and uh, created uh, some new purposes for land management training as well as conservation of all its fish and wildlife uh, and its natural diversity. Uh, it set aside areas as wilderness. And Kenai is unique in that it's road accessible. It has large wilderness areas. It also has two industrial areas that has oil and gas development since the 50s. One could argue that one of the primary 
uh, reasons that Alaska became a state when it did was because of discovery of marketable quantities of uh, oil in the Swanson River area of the Kenai Moose Range at the time. And so it's had to manage for wilderness values as well as industrial use and it gets over a million visitors a year so there's all kinds of recreation and and uh, to manage with facilities maintenance and fire and 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 uh, all the biology that we're tasked to do here too i'd like to hear more about uh you know the climate change impacts on the refuge and impacts since that uh ccp and and the effectiveness of ccp under under climate change Sure. I, I think that, uh, you know, when the Refuge Administration Act was amended and required that comprehensive conservation plans uh, be completed on a regular basis, it didn't really mention uh, climate change per se, but it required that we look at all our uses and make sure they're compatible with our purposes and and emphasize the purposes of the refuge mission and and uh, the individual refuges. And so since the Kenai, uh, one of its primary purposes was to conserve all of its fish and wildlife and plants in their natural diversity, uh, you have to know what the stressors are. And Kenai has been around long enough and staffed well enough that it had decades long data sets that it could look at changes and and make decisions on, you know, kind of where where it was headed and and what the impacts to, to wildlife and, and people might be from that. So uh, we were kind of, we kind of benefited more than maybe some newer refuges or those that didn't have a lot of the science mm-hmm. to, to look at changes over time. And I guess I'll just mention a couple. Uh, there's certainly been a lot of studies and people can, can uh, look at those themselves. But uh, you mentioned the bark beetle and that was very controversial because uh, it was killing basically all of the older spruce trees on the Kenai Peninsula and South Central Alaska. And the spruce bark beetle has been around for thousands of years. They've found, you know, pieces of it in coring glaciers when they go down that, uh, you know, for eons in the past. And uh, they certainly found that the beetle was around. But what we found had changed is the climate has warmed just enough that the beetles were able to complete their life cycle in in one year rather than two. And so under normal circumstances, they seem to evolve by overwintering as larvae uh, under the cambrium layer of of trees and then fly the next year. But with just a few degrees temperature change, uh, they could complete that life cycle in one year and fly and and, Mm -hmm. get into other other stands of trees. And as such, we've seen an epidemic that basically killed white spruce and, and trees 60 years and older, peninsula-wide over a few years, and, and uh, you know, changed the habitat greatly, created changes in, in fire risks and view sheds, and got people pretty excited. So that was one change that, that we documented. And just basically others was rising tree line uh, from warmer climates up into the alpine, which affects sheep and goat habitat, caribou habitat, and that kind of thing, as well as drying of our lakes and ponds. Uh, we lost about 50% uh, over 50 year time period. So it's pretty significant. Yeah, that's uh, all of this, um, this talk about Alaska and national wildlife refuges is, is fascinating to me. Um, just, you know, I, I uh, spent some time working in the Pacific Northwest National Wildlife Refuge System, as, as you did. And so maybe we can kind of shift 
the conversation about that. It's a totally different uh, situation where in Alaska you have multi-million acre refuges that are landscapes unto themselves, and you come down to uh, to to Portland, and we have something like the Ridgefield National Wildlife Refuge that is a few thousand acres and has a lot of visitors. It's next to close to highways, and uh, um, it's a different game down here. Um, so I'm, I imagine that was a bit of a, uh, a mind shift for you to 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 fit into that role as the as the chief of the the National Wildlife Refuge System in re- what we called Region 1, the Pacific Northwest and the uh, Pacific Islands as well, where I guess now there are seascapes that are protected under the, the refuge system as well. So I guess, um, can you explain kind of the role of the regional refuge chief in general and and more specifically what what your responsibilities were in, in, that, in that role? Fish and Wildlife Service has uh, eight regions and uh, each of the geographic areas uh, has a, a chief of, of refuges for that area. And in the Pacific Northwest and, and uh, Hawaii and the remote Pacific Islands, there were over 70 refuges that I had administrative responsibility for. <clears throat> and you mentioned the marine protected areas because I think it's, it's of note really that there's between 500 and 600 uh, national wildlife refuges nationwide now that I think have about 95 million acres of land, but 700 to 800 million acres of, of marine. So all of that comes out of the Pacific region, obviously, and there are very large marine national monuments that were formed under the Antiquities Act that are part of the National Wildlife Refuge System and uh, very unique and wonderful places. The Papahana Makuakea uh, National Monument, it includes Midway Atoll and all of its history and wonders of seabirds and sea turtles and all of that is remarkable. And uh, if you could ever get to Palmyra Atoll, you know, it's a thousand miles south of Honolulu with nothing in between uh, 50 some islands in in a extinct volcano that's one of the most pristine coral reefs left in in the world. Uh, Some amazing uh, resources out there that are part of the National Wildlife Refuge System. What kind of uh, issues, concerns kind of kept you up at night, Robin, while you're uh, working there in the Pacific region? Well, I guess it's it probably isn't too surprising. There really weren't that much different than Alaska. You know, it's it's uh, all the stressors and and uh, politics that come with managing large areas. And so, while on one hand it's very cold and you know in the north and and warm out in the west, there still are remote areas that have unique resources and logistical challenges and unique history with uh, uh, you know indigenous peoples. That we had to manage, and you know, since we're really talking about climate change, um, those issues were maybe even more evident to me in the last few years working in the Pacific, mostly because of sea level rise. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'll speak about that a little bit, but I think also fire. When you think of Hawaii, you don't think of fire, but uh, obviously mm-hmm. the news has has changed that some people's minds with the horrific fires that we've seen in in uh, the last year in Hawaii and even in a declining budget, I remember the very last new position that I funded when I was the regional chief there was for a fire management position to work in collaboration with others in Hawaii. So it's drying and uh, more brush fires and uh, it it drastically affects, you know, habitat that we're managing for forest birds. If you invest 
decades and growing a koa uh, tree forest uh, for native birds and you have it burn, that's not a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, looking at that uh, was a major emphasis, but the, the sea level one is the one that I think if I was laying awake at night, uh, gave me the most concerns. And that's just because of melting ice and permafrost and just the science of water molecules being a little larger when they're warm, sea level's coming up. And one of the decisions that I made uh, when I was the regional chief was to abandon uh, our, our research facility at French Frigate Shoals on Turn Island that we'd had staff since the 70s. And there was a World War II runway on it. Uh, when we get surges of storms, uh, you know, the Coast Guard would go in and land and, and take people off. And the last time they did that, they said they wouldn't do it anymore. And so we wow. had to take, take people off the island. And, and so all of these remote atolls are very, very uh, low elevation islands. And they are so critically important for uh, haul out and nesting for millions and millions of seabirds. Albatross come to mind, but there's so many others, uh, as well as sea turtles and and endangered monk seals and that. And so when they're underwater, you know, what are we going to do to conserve those species? And about the only thing you really can do in the long run is uh, have access to and manage forelands and higher elevation islands and, and remove predators and, and fence them because that's the limiting factor uh, in the mainland areas and in Hawaii is cats and mongooses and dogs. You can't have birds come ashore and, and nest successfully for several months when they have that kind of predation. And so it can be mitigated, but it'll take a lot of work and, and planning. If we could rescue the planet from the ravages of the climate crisis and, in the process, save a million species from extinction, would we do it? Former U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Senior Policy Advisor for the National Wildlife Refuge System, Robert Campoloni, explores the United States' most pressing conservation challenge since Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, the triple planetary crisis, pollution, climate boiling, and biodiversity loss. In Designing Nature's Half, a practical guide to conserve 50% by 2050, Campoloni reveals previous nationwide initiatives to design sustainable and resilient landscapes, provides an easy-to-follow how-to guide for taking a collaborative, science-based approach to identify conservation actions across large landscapes, and advocates for taking a third nationwide try to design Nature's Half. Learn how to take a synergistic approach to mitigating the climate crisis and conserving biodiversity in Designing Nature's Half, a practical guide to conserve 50% by 2050 and be part of the global movement to save the planet. For more information, visit www.designingnatureshalf.com. We've spent half of the podcast talking about the challenges the refuge system faces in Alaska and the uh, but you've opened the door there, Robin, to to uh, shift and talk about adaptation. So uh, maybe we could follow that thread a little bit more. Are there any some broad kind of high level kind of concepts that that kind of resonate with you? We're facing a you know an issue that was centuries in the making, and it's global in nature. And uh, so we have to address long-term strategies, you know, and viewing the, uh, your planned actions with 
results that you hope to attain given the environment that we're predicting you know, we're coming to. And it is global in nature and it, 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 it's so huge. It's easy, one, just to put your head in the sand and say, I can't do anything, or two, get so focused on something that's so minor, you might as well not be doing anything. Uh, you know, and so I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but at the same time, you know, I like to to look at this whole thing kind of as a three-legged stool that the whole world sits on and uh, with an umbrella that they're holding. And that three-legged stool to address this issue would be something like, uh, first off, managing carbon. There's an old adage that when you find yourself in a hole, the first thing you need to do is stop digging. Uh, but that's huge. And then number two in this, having complete science and uh, planning. You know, so you can't just go willy-nilly with this as we have to really know what we're doing. These are big, big decisions. So you got to have the right science and the right planning tools to lay it out in front of you before you start pulling the trigger on adaptation or anything else. Three, you have to have adequate tools. And in this case, I'm just going to say broadly, it's kind of what you guys are are uh, discussing is that you have to have the land, you know, and the water and the area in order to do the manipulations. If you don't have control, that doesn't mean you have to own it. Uh, you just have to have willing partners. And so right. it can be, you know, state land, tribal land, military land, uh, refuges and parks and all that working together for common goals that they appreciate and have a and have a self-interest in. Uh, and then that umbrella that I mentioned over the, this three-legged stool is having public outreach and education, which equals support. And so people, and it doesn't have to be everybody, but it has to be a vocal majority uh, to influence decision makers as engaged constituents that this is, you know, what, what they want to see in life. And so when you get that combination, and uh, whether that is locally or statewide or nationally or internationally, uh, that's the formula for, for chipping away at this. And so adaptation is part of the, the picture. It's what we will do uh, to address known threats and try and mitigate losses because there's going to be losses. We're going to have more extinctions. We already are seeing that. The world's population in my lifetime has grown 180%. You know, the demand on water and food uh, and land is only increasing. So that's the environment we'll be making these decisions in. But tease that all apart, you need engaged collaborative communities working on a specific set of goals, and they're going to be different for, right. for different areas. And so if you're trying to manage seabirds in the Pacific, uh, that's a whole different set of goals versus managing for uh, fire uh, issues in the Pacific Northwest or desert turtles in the Southwest or, or whatever. And you'll have to look at both the human needs as well as nature's needs and recognize they often overlap. And also when you make progress in one area, uh, you'll make progress in others, maybe not even planned. But uh, for example, when you have large conservation units that you're using to mitigate and adapt, uh, you also can maintain vegetation and uh, at levels or even enhanced levels to, to help with uh, sequestration of carbon. So 
we could talk about this for a century. Uh, and and uh, as long as we're moving forward, that's a good thing. But uh, this is this is a big one. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a huge one, and um, you know I liked your three legged stool analogy, and one of the the legs you talked about was was science. Um, I'm just wondering what you know what kind of science would be helpful to the refuge managers or land managers or or these collaboratives that are working for climate adaptation. Well, I think we're becoming increasingly um, accepting of artificial intelligence and. Uh, and yet, you know, really, it's it's nothing new in terms of just making projections. And so, mm-hmm. when I was going to school, we did modeling and and then and then uh, develop algorithms to to predict outcomes. That's really what we're talking about. And if you look at a lot of the decisions that have been made on climate change for, say, listing polar bears or not listing sage grouse and that kind of thing, it's based on the best science we have available. And, and putting predictive models together. And they will never be perfect. They will always be wrong. Unfortunately, what some of them, and maybe many of them that I've witnessed in the last decade or so, they've underpredicted the rapidity of change. And uh, nonetheless, you can't get caught up in that. You use the best science you can and, and uh, improve it as you can. And that's part of the feedback loop on any science that anybody does is that you need to see if your predictions are accurate and make Mm -hmm. adjustments. And we have to be able to adapt ourselves uh, and our management actions in order to to do the larger adaptive management on the ground. And we're going to make mistakes. The worst thing you can do is nothing. And uh, you learn from mistakes too. And so uh, sitting on our hands and not trying to test some of these things and improve our models uh, would be a mistake. You know, another aspect of this, Robin, that you mentioned was um, adaptation planning. And as a planner, it's very near and dear to my heart. You know, over the past uh, 10 years or so, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the National Wildlife Refuge System specifically, has been uh, advocating for and promoting the idea of collaborative, multi-jurisdictional, multi-sector conservation design uh, at landscape levels. Um, the LCCs back in the day were, uh, were beginning to move down that path. Uh, some of those uh, regional partnerships were actually trying their hand at landscape conservation design. Unfortunately, they went away and we're kind of here now wondering how do we start that up again? Um, I think you're spot on when you talk about the need for uh, multi-jurisdictional, multi-sector parties coming together and doing that type of planning and design work, uh, but without a a nationwide convening body to kind of facilitate that. Um, It's kind of left up to landscape partnerships uh, to kind of come together and begin to think about uh, implementing a design process, uh, which is a real challenge uh, without some sort of uh, ability to feel as if you're part of a larger network, the uh, larger movement of collaboratives working together across the country 
that when they all kind of roll up their data together at a nationwide level, we could say, okay, we know what we're doing. We, we, we could, as you mentioned, we could review our models and, and make sense of the data and make sense of the uh, adaptation strategies that we're applying on the ground. Uh, but without that national kind of coordination, uh, it becomes a little bit more challenging to be able to calculate our success. And I'm just wondering, uh, from a refuge manager's perspective, or even as a regional chief's perspective, um, how you feel about the, you know, my my uh, perspective on that. Well. Certainly that's true, Rob. I mean, everything you said is, you know, it, it, you know, individuals uh, working uh, alone and in neighborhoods and uh, even small community organizations uh, are all valuable in, in affecting change. But in order to get the kind of change as fast as we probably need, we need larger communities and states and, and uh, national uh, coordination and planning and implementation, which will require you know, public debate and uh, likely legislation and maybe even international treaties. Nothing new, uh, but uh, challenging given the, given the subject matter. I think that uh, we've seen some, some good examples of how this has worked with successes at uh, various levels. I, you know, I look at the Fish and Wildlife Services uh, initiative with the North American Waterfowl Management Plan uh, back in the mid 80s, and we signed an agreement uh, with Canada, I think in 1986, and then with Mexico later in 1994. And it is a national plan and uh, for, and then a North American plan, uh, right. all focused on, on uh, migratory birds and waterfowl. And yet it was broken down uh, in subsequent years into joint ventures. And I think there's probably about 25 joint ventures that uh, uh, they mo mostly focused on habitat that uh, they were regional partnerships uh, focused on collaboration, didn't make anybody do anything. They looked at uh, enlightened self-interest on, on their objectives, but uh, governments were involved certainly, but also NGOs, non-governmental organizations and tribes and corporations and private citizens. And it all was really successful because it engaged others and built partnerships and developed cooperative spirit with industry and folks could see the benefits to them uh, personally as, as well as to their communities uh, when they got that done. And uh, that's one good example. And then, you know, one when I was in Oregon that, that I think is a little different, but it shows what a state can do. Uh, and this goes back to, I think, 1973 is when the law passed, because I know Tom McCall was the governor then, as they developed... 19 statewide land use planning goals uh, via legislation that looked at basically everything. And the one I was most involved with was forest forest lands, which was goal four. And they required implementation at local levels. So counties are the ones that implemented it. Uh, and yet there was a, a statewide um, commission, the Oregon Land Conservation Development Commission was put together that ensured that the county plans were consistent with the statewide goals. And again, it dealt with everything from citizen involvement to urbanization and energy and ocean resources and, and you name it. It was a comprehensive plan for a state 
that has evolved over the years, uh, changing direction and the, the target goals and all that. It's not a one and done kind of a thing. Uh, and that process is in place to, to ensure compliance uh, with the goals and in everything that is being done within, within a state. I'm sure there are dozens of other examples of uh, where groups have got together with a common interest and it takes time uh, and honesty. That's the way it'll get done. Um, you know, as a as a career long federal employee, what do you see the role of the the federal government, the U.S. federal government, in, in landscape scale conservation? I mean, we own a lot of it. Um, yeah. You know, it, from the get go, and it, we don't own it ourselves. We own it in trust for the American people and future generations. But the executive branch, all the federal uh, land management agencies, are just impl- implementers of legislation, and whether it's to manage a national park or mineral leasing on BLM land or whatever, it comes via direction of Congress, which is, you know, an accumulation of, of uh, our elected officials that we have to do our best to keep our, our eye on the ball, recognizing the political environment is kind of like a pendulum that does switch back and forth and try not to get hit when it's moving uh, the other way, but to follow the law. And, uh, and with, within that, Again, recognize that we already have, I don't know, the refuge system, I, I think I mentioned, had about 100 million acres and uh, national forest is close to 200 million acres and park service, I think, is about 85 million acres. And of course, BLM is about an eighth, an eighth of the whole United States, about 250 million acres, tons of land and resources uh, that we manage directly or indirectly, even in trust for tribes and that kind of thing. And uh, the, the question is a big one, but the simple answer is with what we have uh, responsibility for now, uh, our primary goal ought to be working together on common goals. And so we shouldn't be managing the National Wildlife Refuge System in total uh, you know, autonomy from BLM or, or the Forest Service. You know, We ought to be talking with each other and working with our constituents to to do land management conservation across the country and not manage for our own specific purposes because we share common threats. And if we're going to be successful, we have to share a common solution. Uh, Let's drill down a little bit more uh, focused on the National Wildlife Refuge System, Robin. And, you know, it's one of the largest protected area networks in the world, close to 600 units uh, nationwide. But unlike refuges in Alaska, you know, the refuges in the lower 48 tend to be small patches of managed habitat, often within a human-dominated matrix. You talked a little bit about how we should be managing those units in close association with other protected areas uh, across the landscape. But... I get, and you know it's hard to argue with that, but I'm just wondering, uh, what do you see as the role of the refuge system in furthering, promoting, implementing landscape conservation, if any, and what role can individual refuges play uh, within that larger landscape, within that larger matrix uh, that includes a diversity of stakeholders, and quite frankly. How does the refuge system begin to interact with other land entities, other jurisdictions? Again, if there's not this convening body 
you know, how's that, how's that happening? Does the refuge manager pick up the phone? <laughs> well, yeah, someone has to take the initiative if an initiative doesn't exist. But I think uh, just in general, uh, refuges you know, certainly are the only group of lands that are set aside totally for the conservation of fish and wildlife. And so right. other lands are, are managed for multiple uses or for cultural resource protection or whatever. But uh, so they're unique. Uh, they have strong uh, legislative backing. Uh, there's at least one uh, in every of the 50 states. Most large communities have a refuge within an hour's drive of their community. So they can kind of provide anchors for uh, people to connect with nature as well as learn about important community involvement. And, uh, you know, through friends organizations, private organizations working through refuge demonstrate what may be considered small things, but small things get to medium-sized things to large things like, you know, uh, conserving pollinators. And, uh, and frequently, I would argue, too, is uh, even though some of these are extremely small, most of the refuges were, were established because of their importance either to an endangered species or uh, for migratory birds and uh, are important is unique elements in, in the life history of birds. For example, one of the refuges I worked on in Alaska was Eisenbeck Refuge, and most people will never visit it. It's 650 miles from the roaded area of Anchorage, but uh, the eelgrass beds there are critically important for migrating uh, brant and, and uh, ducks and geese that are moving up and down the coast. And so even though you don't, it's just one small refuge in Alaska, uh, it's critically important for the whole life history of a variety of, of animals. And when you put that together times nearly 600, you have quite a, a network of importance, not only for the wildlife, but also uh, as opportunity to work with people in through initiatives like uh, urban wildlife refuge development and getting people out on the ground to connect with nature. It's all it's all part of, uh, I think, what's necessary to help the public not only enjoy the, the resource, resource that they co-own, but get involved. And, you know, fundamentally, and I'm wandering a little bit here, but, you know, I go on and on talking about refuges because they were my life for so long, but they're just, when you're managing for wetlands and, and uh, you are contributing to aquifer recharging and flood control and storm surge protection and wildlife man or wildfire management and that kind of thing they're they're critical anchors even uh in small areas in the community so take that to what we just talked about and use those in collaboration with adjacent landowners whether they be private or other public lands they can play a critical role in in the the future conservation of country, and they already are, I would argue, and they can do more. Well, Robin, um, I'm afraid we're running out of time here, but it's been great having you on as a as a guest and reconnecting with you. Uh, uh, I just want to give you one more chance to to share any parting thoughts uh, with our listeners before you go. Well, I appreciate the time uh, for us to chat and uh, again, uh, applaud your guys' efforts. It's a monumental task. And I guess the last thing that I would share is an often used uh, quote from Aldo Leopold, uh, who said something to the effect to keep every cog and wheel is the first precaution of intelligent tinkering. And so I look at that as a primary uh, mandate in conservation is that uh, 
we want we need to do some tinkering and we need to get about it pretty quickly on some things or just sit back and watch the changes without being involved but in doing so we need to be conservation minded and uh, and uh, i think in the long run we'll be well served by taking care of uh, our fish and wildlife resources to don't get a vote in this matter excellent thanks so much robin um Tom, do you have any parting thoughts to share? Uh, just that I really appreciated the conversation. I, I loved hearing Robin's thoughts about uh, finding common ground. And I think that's how you do conservation at, at broader scale. So that was that was great to hear. And just the the wisdom and the of, of multiple years working on challenging issues. So thank you so much, Robin. Thank you, guys. Well, thanks again to our guest, Robin West. And thank you, our listeners for tuning in to episode two of Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast. I've been your co-host, Rob Campoloni. And I've been your other co-host, Tommy Wall. Join us again every two weeks for another informative episode of Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast. Thank you. Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast is researched, written, edited, and produced by Rob Campoloni and Tom Mewald. Lucas Gallardi created the Designing Nature's Half cover art and logo design. Tom Askin is the voice behind the intro and outro. And the music was written and performed by composer Alexi Kistlin via Pixabay. Designing Nature's Half, the Landscape Conservation Podcast, is a proud member of Mind Matter Media, a startup multimedia network whose mission is to change the world by designing sustainable and resilient landscapes for people, planet, and prosperity.